How's everyone doing so far? Praise the Lord. Again, I want to encourage everyone in the back to move forward, to come up closer. Um, so I'm going to try to, uh, we got basically maybe about an hour. Um, and I'm going to try to accomplish two things here. First, not only, I'm going to try to share my testimony. Um, and my second goal here today, by God's grace, is I'd like to share with you about the homosexual community and what we don't understand and how can we reach them, including our friends and our family. So if you can, before I even continue, please bow your heads with me as I ask for God's guidance and power. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, I just want to just want to thank you so much, Father, for such an opportunity to testify of what you've done. And Lord, I know what you've done in my life, you can do with everyone. Um, Father, I just ask for your Holy Spirit. I ask, Lord, for your presence here. I ask, Father, that you open our hearts and our minds um, to hear this message that you've prepared, dear Father. May we sit face to face with you right now. May we leave this place changed, dear Lord, transformed by your love. This is my prayer, dear Father, and I ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to speak through me and to hide me behind thy cross, Lord, for it is you that will be lifted up. I pray this in Jesus' name. Let everyone say amen. Amen? Um, wasn't that a blessing, the Patel brothers? Amen? amen? Praise the Lord. I think they covered it a lot. We could probably end now. No. Um, I was very blessed. I actually heard um, uh, a version of their testimony at the Army uh, Bible Camp at Leone Meadows, and I was really blessed, and I was really looking forward to uh, what God was preparing through them for iShare. The title of my presentation today is Loving as Jesus Would, The People Pleaser. You know, one of the inspirations that me and my sister, and though that's another note too, my sister was supposed to do this presentation with me, um, but as some of you might know, my sister has systemic lupus, and um, when lupus attacks, it really takes you down. Um, so even in the midst today, if you can whisper a prayer for her. She's in good spirits, God is good, and she's resting, and uh, God has called me to um, share this message with you. Amen? Amen. Um, what inspires me and my sister um, with this story? Because we've gotten a lot of people tell us, wow, it takes a lot of courage to share your type of testimony, especially in, a day, in, in days like this now, right? In the political climates that we face now. And this is what inspires us. Our confession of his faithfulness is heaven's chosen agency for revealing Christ to the world. We are to acknowledge His grace, His grace, as made known through the holy men of old, by that which will be most effectual is the testimony of our own experience. Amen? All day, all this afternoon, you've been hearing testimony after testimony after testimony. There's another seminar going on. People are sharing their testimony. Isn't it powerful when you hear what Christ can do in someone's life? Amen? Amen? We are witnesses for God as we reveal in ourselves the working of a power that is divine. 
straight out of the, uh, the mouth of our prophet. In God's word, we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, if you can go there, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. I'm highlighting that word for you. Mercies. And God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in some trouble, any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What a privilege God our Father has given us, brothers and sisters, that through our own trials and tribulations and the mere fact that we reach out to God for comfort, that very comfort can be that same comfort we can share with somebody else. Amen? Powerful. So I'm going to begin with my testimony. <clears throat> I was born in the Philippines, and we immigrated to the United States, to California, to Southern California, when I was about two and a half years old. Uh, this is a picture of me of when I was three. Uh, we weren't here for very quite that long yet until something started to happen in our home that went on for about three years without anyone knowing. My mom still has a very hard time looking at this picture because all she sees is the sad face, the sad eyes in this picture. You see, I was violated by a distant relative for three years in secret, sexually violated. It was a very hard time for me. This was the time where I felt my vision of the world the way I perceived the world and everyone around me was skewed. My vision distorted. And I struggled throughout my childhood, um, liking girls. I struggled. Um, I was a, considered a tomboy. I would get down in the dirt and play marbles with the boys. My, uncle, my uncles used to get mad at me for being that way. And I grew up just struggling, struggling, went throughout elementary, junior high, and, and what plagued me was just fantasies. I was caught up in the fantasy of picturing um, being with another woman. And another thing was going on in my life. You see, my mom caught the perpetrator when I was six years old. What mother knows what to do in a situation like that? We weren't created to deal with something like that. We weren't created to be single moms or single fathers. We weren't created to deal with sin, brothers and sisters. We don't know what to do when something happens. Adam and Eve ran and tried to hide themselves and covered themselves. We do the same thing. We don't know how to handle sin. And we think we do. So my mom, my poor mom, broken, as she saw this sight in front of her, her child, having been touched and violated at such a tender age, she froze. She couldn't hold me. She couldn't console me. I remember the first thing was running up to her and asking her, Mama, 
are you mad at me? And my mom said, no, but just go lie down. And I felt at that time, I, didn't, I felt like my mother didn't want to touch me. I felt like it was my fault. And this is what I grew up with, thinking that it was always my fault. So I grew up with this struggle, and this was our home. My, our father was detached from us. He did not engage with us emotionally. He was a tired man. He worked full time and overtime. The only times we could get a hold of him or get to touch or have some sort of relationship with our father was when we would go out to eat. So my father being disengaged, my mom in her manic depressive state, up and down. Me and my sister clung to the times where she, was, she had clarity. We clung to her when she was loving and available and, and connected with us. But throughout my life, I still struggled with these fantasies of wanting to be loved by another woman. When my mom caught the perpetrator, she kept it a secret for two years from my father. You see, brothers and sisters, if there's anything to learn about sin and addiction in anything, that Satan thrives in secrecy. That's where he'll get you. He'll get you to feel alone. No one will like you. No one will understand you. No one will want to touch you. No one wants to be friends with you. And these were the kinds of thoughts that tormented me throughout my entire childhood. I was made fun of constantly. I would put myself in situations. I was a comedian. So I took it to empower myself and to make people laugh. When my father found out, I believe right there and then, looking back, my father, my heavenly father, healed my fear of men. I was almost nine years old when my father found out. And that for the first time in my life, I saw a grown man cry. First time I was held in three years. First time I was told that it was not my fault. But by the time, by that time, brothers and sisters, I tell you, I was already in la-la land. I've already built a way of escape in my mind. And I literally, I remember the words telling my father, why are you crying, Papa? I'm okay. But right there at that very moment, I, I really felt and convicted that my heavenly father began to heal me of my fear of men because my father held me. He cried for me. He cried over me. And I grew up longing for a woman to love me. Why do you think that is? So throughout junior high and high school, I had this struggle. Ordinary family, father worked full time, my mom worked as well. I started having issues with obsessive compulsive disorder. I had to clean the house. I had to do the laundry and I wanted to do it. I found joy in cleaning the house, spick and span. Someone would get off the couch, I'd fix the couch right away. The obsessive compulsive disorder was really rough. My dad came home one summer and I told him, oh, Pa, I said, guess what I did today? 
says, what you do? And he's looking at the kitchen counter. Then he suddenly goes, what did you do? I said, I changed the caulking. How'd you do that? I was 14 years old. Because I remember I used to see him do stuff around the house. So I did, I had projects throughout that summer. And like I said, my OCD was so bad. Like I, well, I was a perfectionist. And part of my perfectionism was about pleasing my mother. But at the same time, I was trying to prove to her that I could be better than her. Pretty twisted, isn't it? For a 14 year old to do that. I wanted to please her and at the same time I wanted to show to her that I could be better than her. I could be better than my father. In 1985, I had just graduated high school and we were introduced to the Seventh-day Adventist Church and we started going. You see, my mother was on her own spiritual healing. She was reading books all of a sudden about emotional and spiritual healing. My father, on the other hand, was attracted to Nostradamus prophecy, the worldwide church of God, who were Sabbatarians, by the way. My father was reading into all of this stuff. And I, for some reason, actually, I saw the movie Yentl. So I was really... I was really intrigued by the Jewish religion and I started reading up on it and I wanted to find ways to become Jew, become a Jewish, uh, Jew, uh, to be in the Jewish faith. And so this is where our family was at that time. We were all of a sudden on a search, but we were in different places. Then my mom got invited to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And all this time we had been going to the Roman Catholic Church since we came here to the States. We started going to church every Sabbath, and it was, a, it, was, it was refreshing. I felt refreshed. I felt all of a sudden there could be hope for me. I knew I was struggling. I knew there was something wrong with me. I knew what I was going through was wrong. I knew the fantasies that I was going, having was wrong. All of a sudden, we're going to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and every Sabbath, and we're also, we started also having Bible studies. And we started getting involved with the church. We started doing homeless ministry. And after six months of Bible study, the entire family, my mom, my dad, myself, my brother, and my sister, we got baptized. December 14th, 1985. And I really felt that this was the beginning of a new life for me and for my family. I started to see changes in my father. I started to see changes in my mother more connectedness, more clarity, more uni united times that we would have together. But I was still struggling. There was one Bible study that our Bible worker gave us. And she says, the Bible study that I'm going to give you tonight, she starts whispering. She's in our house, and I'm wondering why she's whispering. She says, it's a little bit advanced, so don't tell anyone I'm giving this to you guys right now. You should probably have this Bible study after you're baptized. We're like, oh, okay. And so she goes, okay, I'm going to show you the sanctuary. The sanctuary? What's that? Me and my brother and my sister were at this round table in our dining room. We're like, wow. And she took us through the sanctuary. She walked us through the sanctuary. She took us to Hebrews chapter 12 that we have a high priest. And this sanctuary message was what solidified the faith for us as a family. That's, that's the night we decided to be baptized as a family. 
Praise God. That message stuck with me, brothers and sisters, I tell you. It stuck with me for years. One night we're having a volleyball social night at the church in the gym. This was in San Diego, Chula Vista, Seventh-day Adventist Church. Anyone from Chula Vista? San Diego. Okay, represent. So social night, it's volleyball. We come as we are. We're playing. We're having fun. I wore my favorite Coca-Cola shirt. That was my favorite shirt. I remember it was red, white, gray, and it said Coca-Cola. It was really cool. Wore it with jeans, came playing volleyball. And one of the aunties called me over to the side where all the other aunties were standing, staring at me with disdained look on their face. And this one auntie says, you know, you shouldn't really be wearing that Coca-Cola shirt, really out loud. And the other aunties started whispering to each other, and yeah, you shouldn't really, and then you see all of them. And I was, I felt so embarrassed. But in my mind, I was 18. In my mind, I'm thinking, man, if you can't handle my Coca-Cola shirt, I can't tell you what I'm struggling with. And it just became one discouragement after another, you know? And I was trying to be so good. I was reading my Bible. I was reading the Sabbath school lesson every day. I got involved with helping out with the homeless ministry, and I really loved it. I really loved working with the homeless ministry. One Sabbath afternoon, we're doing homeless ministry, and this man, he comes over to me. He goes, can I just get one more pair of socks? We had a big trash bag of socks. I said, you know what? I'll see what I can do. Because everyone was setting down the guidelines and the rules. Only give one pair of socks, one sandwich, one apple, one of this, one of that, one of this, right? Well, me and my rebellious self, I always try to push the envelope and break the, <laughs> break the rules a little bit. So I went to the lady that was in charge, and I said, you know what? This guy, he's, he just really needs one more pair. Is it? Can we just give him one more pair? And she says, no. I said, are you serious? I said, we have enough in there to give him three pairs each. And then again, that was another discouragement for me. I stopped doing homeless ministry. And I figured, you know, maybe I should go to a Christian school. So I applied. The picture that you see up here is me and my family when we got baptized at the Chula Vista Church. And so I figured, oh, you know what, let me, maybe I should go to Loma Linda. So I applied, I got accepted, I went to Loma Linda, La Sierra campus, that's what it was called before. <laughs> um, went there for one year, stayed in the all-girls dorm, it was South Hall, and my struggles came back like fire. The fantasies, the wanting to connect with other women, but nothing ever happened. God's grace held me together, but I was tormented in my mind. After that year, I prayed. During that year, it was coming to the end. Said, Lord, you know, maybe I just need to get away to like some far, far away land. Maybe be a missionary or something, you know, at this like where there's no electricity and no lights or something, and I could just learn to depend on you. And, and so I signed up, and I got approved for Hawaii. 
Well, someone's got to go to Hawaii. <laughs> Amen. So I was, uh, I went to the Hilo Church and the Hilo School there. And I was a teacher's aide. I was a pathfinder leader. I was a Bible school teacher. I kept myself spiritually busy, but inside I was in torment. I didn't know what to do with myself. Well, the year my contract ended, I couldn't go back to Loma Linda. Tuition went up. My Cal grants had stayed the same. I decided to move back home to San Diego, find a full-time job, and go to school. It was during this time where I stopped going to church. It was during this time where I had met someone who I worked with and who I went to school with. And we had a secret relationship for two years. No one knew. Another woman, that is. And I stopped going to church altogether. The guilt was too intense. And I knew somehow, some way, church was not the place for me. In my mind, the thoughts were, they're just going to freak out. They're not going to understand. They're not going to accept me. So why should I go? No one's going to listen to me anyway. Who can help me? Well, me and my girlfriend at that time, things didn't work out. She went her way and I went mine. And that's when I decided to move to San Francisco to live it out loud and proud. And I did. It didn't take me very long to fit in. I became a political and social activist for the gay community. I changed my clothes. I changed the way I looked. And by 1995, that was me. I don't know if you can see the picture. Get out of your way. <clears throat> I was in every gay pride parade in San Francisco. I worked for AIDS agencies. I did some theater work for AIDS, around educating people around AIDS. And I met someone. And uh, this person became a long-term partner for me. We were together for eight years. We didn't know it was going to end that soon. We had planned for a family. So we looked up some anonymous donor profiles from the sperm bank in Berkeley. And uh, we prepared to get pregnant. And my partner got pregnant. And uh, I legally adopted her. It's reportedly that I was the first in the state of California to have adopted under a new law that was afforded to same-sex couples so that their adoption could be smoother and without any red tape. And that I would, meaning my adoption, adopting my daughter at six months, that's when the adoption became final. Basically, it was an adoption that no one can take away from me. It was, the judge told me, it's as if you had this girl yourself. NBC News got wind of that. I was all over the news and the newspapers. They came over to our house. It's quite overwhelming. But you see, brothers and sisters, while I was in this community, and while I was such a political and social activist, I felt a sense of entitlement. I felt this sense, this need of attention. I was always out in the public eye. 
I was in every gay pride parade. All of a sudden, now I have a daughter to raise. And I don't want her to have the same life as I do. And that was a conviction. But I ignored it. Caught up with my friends and my partner. Soon enough, our relationship was coming undone. And by the time my daughter was 10 months old, we had broken up. 10 months old, my daughter began to go back and forth between me and her birth mother. We had her at home. I delivered her. It was a beautiful experience. I'll never forget it, staring into her eyes right after she was born, taking her first breath. And then just come to realize at 10 months old that we would be divorced, me and my partner. We never married. We registered with the domestic partner as domestic partners with the state of California. Funny thing is, I never believed in getting married. I never believed in same-sex couples needing to get married. Well, for me, I didn't want to. I didn't want to have a paper to say that we were together. I didn't want to have a piece of paper to say, to define the kind of love we had. But underlining that was conviction. Again, I felt God convicting me everywhere in my life. We drive by a Seventh-day Adventist church, I'd sink in my seat because I didn't want anyone to see me. I go visit my parents in San Diego. By this time, you know, me and my partner are living in the Bay Area. I go visit my parents in San Diego and she'll ask me to go to church. I'm like, no, I don't think the people will handle, will be able to handle what I look like now. One time I went to the church and I stayed in the parking lot. I said, Ma, I'll just wait for you out here in the parking lot. And I'm looking at the church building, wondering when my mom's going to come out. I see this lady running from the church doors down the parking lot. It's not my mom. Somebody else who had heard I was in the parking lot. And this lady comes running from the church, and she just grabs me and embraces me. And it caught me off guard because I was just like, Does she, can she see my butch hair and the men's clothes I'm wearing? Like, and she's hugging me? She's hugging me? And that touched me. In 1999, my father had a stroke, and we're here at the hospital. My mom tells me, oh, Vern, Anak, Anak meaning my child in Tagalog, um, I just want to let you know there's going to be some people coming from church. And I got all defense, and I'm like, so why? Why are you telling me? Are you embarrassed me? You want me to go hide somewhere? I'll go hide. I was a very angry person. So I went to go hide because I thought that's what my mom was trying to tell me. And she was trying to tell me, no, 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 no. I just want to let you know. So if you're not comfortable, you can go somewhere. I said, yeah, sure, whatever. So I'll go hide. So I went to go hide. I found another floor, a lobby on another floor, and I'm sitting there in the dark. The lights are not even on. All of a sudden, I hear the elevator. Ding. I'm sitting there, and I hear these footsteps, little footsteps. And I see some, a familiar face look around the corner, and she goes, oh, there you are. Um, in my mind, I'm like, you're looking for me? And I think I actually said it out loud. She goes, yeah, I'm looking for you. She sat there. She put her arms around me. She goes, this must be a really hard time for you. 
And I just sat there. I didn't know what to feel. But again, God used somebody to plant the seed of love in my heart. I never forgot those two incidences, and it always brings me to tears when I remember. Because God was trying to show me that he still loved me. Amen. No matter how much I had turned my back on him, no matter how, how angry I had become. So here I am. My daughter's 10 months, and me and my partner are breaking up. I finally get my own place. I had lost my job. I finally get a job, and I get my own place, and I start getting involved with another woman. You see, during this time, the way me and my partner had met, we met through the domestic violence movement in San Francisco. I became an anti-domestic violence counselor during this time. Brothers and sisters, I can't tell you enough how graceful God is because he was equipping me already with the tools that I needed to have now, even while I was in that lifestyle. God is amazingly graceful to us. And that's how me and my partner had met. I had gotten the training. I advocated for women and men in court. <clears throat> so here I am finding myself in another relationship with another woman, so desperate to be loved, so desperate to be wanted, that I ended up being physically and sexually abused by another woman. In this relationship, there were times where I found myself sleeping on the bathroom floor, scared for my life. My ex-partner, as we were trying to co-parent together, saw bruises on my arm. At one point, she wouldn't let me take my daughter home with me once she saw those bruises. We had the same training. She saw the signs. Good thing I didn't lose my daughter. Again, another sign of God's grace towards me. Because of this relationship and because of the choices I made, I lost my job, I lost my apartment. I found myself sleeping in my car in front of a 24-hour Starbucks, January 1st, 2005. Homeless, sleeping in front of a 24-hour Starbucks. Thank God for 24-hour Starbucks. I was addicted to coffee, so it was a perfect place to be. I had a bathroom to take care of myself. I would find odd-end jobs, you know, here and there. And when it was my turn to have my daughter, I'd somehow, some way, I would have suddenly money to either get a hotel, buy food, maybe sleep at relatives' or friends' homes. But when I didn't have my daughter, I would be alone in my car in front of that very Starbucks. And I found myself one night just crying out loud. Looking back, I knew I was crying out loud to God, but right there and then I wasn't. I didn't know I was talking to God. I forgot how to talk to God. And all I was saying, I remember I was saying to myself, God, look at the mess of my life. Look at my life. How did it get so chaotic? What's going to... How am I going to fix this? How am I going to get a job that pay me? You know, in San Francisco, it's hard to find a job that will help you pay to get your own place, you know? 
to make it. People usually have to make work two jobs. I was crying two, three o'clock in the morning. It's dead of winter in San Francisco and it's cold. May not be as cold as like Michigan in winter, but it was cold. And I found myself turning on the car and just to turn on the heater. Well, sure enough, later on that year, I found a job, finally got my own apartment. Everything was good again. One week, I was a single mom. The following week, I was out with my friends, just having a good time. Proposition 8 came about. So anyone here can tell me what Proposition 8 is or was? Anybody? Was it? No, it wasn't. No, Proposition 8 was written to protect the current definition of marriage, to stay between a man and a woman. It was not about same-sex marriage. The yes side would protect the definition of marriage to be between a man and a woman. The no side will allow equal rights for anyone to marry whoever, whoever they please. That would be the most appropriate language. Well, this came out, well, guess what side me and my friends were on? The no side, of course. You know, I wanted the right to be able to marry somebody I love, regardless if they were a man or a woman. I want to be able to have that choice. Well, you know, all this time I've been saying, I'm born this way. This is who I am. God made me this way. There's nothing I can do about it. What happens when we usually say that? It cuts all conversation, doesn't it? I mean, it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. I was born this way. I'm an angry man. This is how I deal with things. Deal with it, right? I drink. This is how I deal with my problems. I can't stop it. This is what I do. Right? Does it, aren't these the excuses that we give, right? This is how I do things, so leave me alone. And we don't want nobody else's opinions. We don't want to hear anybody's uh, feedback. It just basically cuts communication. What do you say to someone who's like that? Okay. Right? That's who I was. I was very in your face. This is who I am. There's nothing you can do about it. It was disappointing, Proposition 8-1, and I was angry, because you know why? My ex-partner just married another woman before Prop 8 passed. The state of California has created a unique situation, because they're now like they allowed same-sex marriage to happen that summer, 36,000 couples 36,000 individuals, 18,000 couples, same-sex couples, got married that summer of 2008. Now Prop 8 passed, what do we do with those people? The state government was left with that question. Well, what they came up with was, okay, they can remain married, because we can't take it away from them, that will be a civil rights issue. They can stay married, but no one else can now get married. So guess where I was? I was part of the group that I cannot, but my ex-partner got to. 
So I went into competi competition mode. Isn't human nature pretty competitive? Yeah. We breed competition, even in the church, brothers and sisters. I was angry, and this is where God got my attention, by a very divine experience. God revealed himself to me. As I was in the bathroom one day, my sister was visiting me, and we were having this really intense discussion about Proposition 8. And uh, I was just telling her, I just don't get it. What are we missing? I don't understand. And our conversation kind of faded off, and she started watching TV, and I was left alone in the bathroom just talking to myself out loud. And I was just, I was just like, I don't understand. I'm not a bad person. I'm not, I don't want to kill anyone. I want to love someone, for God's sakes. I was just like, what's wrong with everybody? Why does everyone have to hate? And I was talking like this in the bathroom, you know? And all of a sudden, in my mind... I'm not kidding you. In my mind, I see this book, just like this. And the pages are going back and forth, like there was a breeze going back and forth. And when I saw that in my mind, I was like, it's the Bible. Okay. And then the pages stop flipping back and forth. It goes to Hebrews chapter 12, and the words high priest just jump at me. This is all happening in my mind, right? High priest just jumps at me, and I was like, okay, what's that mean? All right. And that kind of, that picture kind of faded out and was kind of blurry, and I was just kind of like, okay, so what does that mean? Jesus, our high priest, yeah, I remember. Oh, yeah, the sanctuary. But what does that got to do with what I'm ranting about? Like, I was really stuck. I was really confused. I was really, I was getting kind of scared. But all of a sudden, in my mind again, I see as if I was transported to a place. And to my right, I see the showbread. To my left, I see the lampstand. And in front of me, I see the altar of incense. And even before that, I see this curtain. And as I'm seeing these images in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I remember the the showbread, the bread of life, okay? And I'm talking out loud to myself as I'm seeing these images. I'm like, the lampstand, the light, the light of the world, the Holy Spirit, the oil. And I'm, I'm trying to make sense of, and, and everything, all of it was just coming at me, and I was like understanding what I was saying. I'm like, my God, sanctuary? And then right at that moment, as I looked up, the curtain split open, and I felt like my body was brought closer to this curtain. And I see Jesus on the cross, and I came about this close to his face. And my, I just, it took my breath away. I felt like I was going to faint. And I said to myself, is that what we're missing? Is that what we're missing? God was showing me that I needed the bread of life. God was showing me that he's the light of the world. I need an anointing of the Holy Spirit. The altar of incense, he was showing me that I need to pray 
I need to go back in relationship with God and pray. And as that curtain opened up, God was revealing to me that I had forgotten my Savior had died for me. I tell you, brothers and sisters, from that time on, God it took me on a journey. I started going to church. At that time, I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. And as I started going to church, I had no intention to change my life. I had no intentions, but I wanted my daughter to learn about Jesus. And through this time, I was taking her to church, and I was going to church. God was revealing himself more and more to me. He took my smoking overnight. January 4, 2009. And one day as I was looking on YouTube and I was looking for music, I was looking for something to encourage me. I had been going to church. I had been taking my Bible wherever I went. I started taking my Bible to work. And as I watched on YouTube this video, it was a clip of the movie, Passions of the Christ. And Mary Magdalene is on the ground, the woman caught in adultery, used to frame Jesus. And Jesus looked down at her, and he just got done writing in the sand the sins of the Pharisees. Yeah? You know the story. Amen? And he looks at her, and he says, where are those who condemn you? Where? Where? Jesus appeals to her. She looks around and she says, they're no longer here. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Brothers and sisters, what we miss often in this story is the fact that Jesus had to reveal the sins of the Pharisees first. They could not throw the stone and they left. Jesus was able to reach this woman's heart because those who were condemning her were no longer there. How often we've gone before the Lord and gone before the Holy Spirit to speak to someone. Just because we're entitled, we feel entitled to. The times my mother spoke to me and told me I was going to go to hell basically made me hate Jesus more and turn my back on him. <clears throat> Shortly after that, I was convicted to get rebaptized. Long story short, me and my sister were both rebaptized together by God's mighty intervention. And um, this picture here is my daughter. This is when I started going to church. She was seven years old when I had started going to church. And as I was watching this video, brothers and sisters, I heard this conviction on my heart and it was as if there was it was a small voice and it said to me my child if Sunday is a counterfeit to my Sabbath what do you think is a counterfeit to my creation I didn't know how to respond to that all I knew I had to repent and all I knew is I had an intense desire to get rebaptized but the days following that, I became angry with God. And I was just like, dude, are you telling me 
I was very disrespectful. I was very trying. Like when I was quitting smoking, I would subject myself to people around me smoking. I'd be like, okay, God, do your thing. You said you would intervene. I never smoked. But now here I am talking to God and I'm angry and I'm like, God, you're telling me I was a counterfeit? You're telling me I'm, I'm a counterfeit. Really? He was my child. And I opened up the word and it went to Romans chapter 1. Can you guys turn there with me? Romans chapter 1. Paul does a really, we don't catch this. We don't catch this, brothers and sisters. And I pray for the Holy Spirit right now. I pray that we all see this because it's right here in front of us. Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 25. Who changed the truth of God into a lie, comma, and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. If you continue to read this passage, Paul continues to write, likewise also men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meek. So basically, Paul begins to write about men being with men, women with women. Verse 25 again. Worshipped and served the creature more than the creator. Brothers and sisters, homosexuality isn't necessarily the counterfeit. The drugs, the pornography, the masturbation, all of these are forms of false intimacy. Where God created intimacy to be meant to be with him. But what we've done in our carnal nature, in our human natures, we've turned worship from the creator to the creature. The root of sin is pride, brothers and sisters. Self-worship. What Paul was doing was giving an example of that very thing. A man be with a man who looks like him. A woman with another woman that looks like her. You're basically mirroring the same body parts, same qualities. What are you worshiping? Yourself. Paul was giving a depiction of what that self-worship was, what worshiping the creature was about. Amen? I don't know if we've run out of time, but if you could just give me a couple more minutes, I really would like to share with you um, something here. Sister White says in Second Testimonies, sorry, Third Testimonies, chapter 11, the warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. Amen? The root of sin. Now, how many here in this room know someone who might be struggling with same-sex attraction or who is gay? How many? 
could be a family and friend, could be people you work with, right? It's everywhere. Brothers and sisters, the messages that the homosexual community have seen about Jesus and about God is that God hates fags. They see these signs. And we're fearful to go into this community. We talk about the gay community like as if it was a dark place. What's the name of our, con our conference? What's, in, what's the name of the, of the iShare conference right now? Light. So what's the use of bringing light into light? Aren't we supposed to go to the dark places? This is where my passion, God has given me a passion. He's taken me out of that community, and he's actually recently brought me back to San Francisco. And it's just like Moses. He told Moses, go back to Egypt and get my people. There are people looking for God in that community, brothers and sisters. But you know what? We can't share Jesus if we don't have him in our own life. We always like, it's human nature to want to point at someone's speck in their eye. But you got a big plank in your own. We have to look at homosexuality, brothers and sisters. Yes, it's a sin. Yes, it's not what God intended us to be. He didn't intend it for me. But I knew once God captured my heart and he reminded me why Jesus died on that cross. Jesus died a bloody death for me. I fell in love with my Savior and I still fall in love with him every day. Amen. I am not finished. He's not finished with me yet. Amen. You know, some, there were times where I thought I've arrived. When he gave me victory over homosexuality, I thought I have arrived. You see, my testimony isn't just about overcoming homosexuality, brothers and sisters. My testimony continues to overcome self. I was programmed to please others first, to please men and not God. I suffer from approval disorder. I suffer from self-entitlement. I'm going to be very raw and real with you guys. It's been rough, but my God is most powerful. Amen? Amen. He lifts me up, and he holds me in his right hand. Brothers and sisters, there were times where I thought I was going to end my life. I didn't want to have nothing to do with ministry. I had to give up my daughter. I only have her one weekend a month right now one month in the summer and I wanted to end my life but God gave me that little girl and she's my mission field right now and he's given me all of you to share this message of his love I have so many slides I want to share this information with you I didn't get to go through everything but I am willing to, sh to email anyone and everyone if you so wish to have this information. There's so many quotes of Sister White saying that the, the prodigals would come back if only by our loving service. 
brothers and sisters, there's hope. If you think that the, the Castro in San Francisco or the San Francisco city is a dark place, there are beautiful and wonderful things that God is doing in that place. Amen. There are people searching. They just don't know who to search for and how to do it. And you're the light. We got to love people to Jesus, brothers and sisters, Amen. with the love that you have for Jesus and the love that he has for you. Galatians 2.20 is a verse I read every day. It's a verse that God gives me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Amen? Let's read that verse together in full, and we'll close. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which now I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We make the gospel so complicated. We really do. And we're seeing things happening in the church, arguments about things, and it's distracting us from the work that God calls each of us to do. He loves us. That's the simplicity of the gospel. He loves you. And he gave himself for you. And he gave himself for all the homosexuals out there. And those who are struggling with transgenderism. That's a whole different topic. This whole issue could have taken three seminars. So I pray, dear my dear friends, if those of you who, are, who have family and friends who are struggling, I'm here to, to counsel with you. Um, I'm here to share the information. If you'd like that, please come approach me. Provide me your email address. And I could email the slides that I was not able to show here in the notes. Um, but we also like to take a prayer list for people who are struggling, families who are struggling with this. Um, I recently went to the Hope Channel at the GC, and the question that I had to answer in the interview was, how should parents respond to their loved ones, to their children, who are coming out to them as gay? And that will be airing in November, so I, I urge you folks to look out for that on the Hope Channel. Again, if you would like the slides um, that I had prepared, um, please provide me your email address. And we'd like to get names uh, to put on our prayer list on our team. So by beholding his love ministry, we go to churches, we go to schools, we go to academies, we go to universities. Does anyone have any questions? Anything? I know we're running a little bit late, but anything? If not, um, if you can just stand with me. Uh, dear Father in heaven, Lord, I just want to thank you so much with um, what you've presented here. Dear Father, and I just pray for my dear brothers and sisters here to not lose hope in the love that you offer everyone, dear Father. Not only us who are in the church, but everyone out there. You died for every soul, dear Father. And I thank you um, for the plan of redemption. I thank you, Lord, for 
um, the power of your word, dear Lord, and what you, how you revealed yourself to me, I know you can reveal yourself to everyone else. Father, I thank you. Empower my dear brothers and sisters here, um, Lord, because you did not give us a spirit of fear, but you gave us a spirit of love. And I thank you for that, dear Father. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.